hooks, sound bites, catchphrases. Our culture is permeated by short phrases that affect us daily. For instance, in music, I think I love you, a song by the Partridge family. I did it my way by Frank Sinatra. Maybe in food, it's the real thing, Coca-Cola. Have it your way, Burger King. Finger licking good, Kentucky Fried Chicken. Or even in Spokane history, from 1953 to 1973, a local televised talent show, Starlet Stairway, featuring children performing under the age of 18. And the slogan from the Boyle Fuel Company, when you need coal or oil, call Boyle. Sung by a pair of twins, and the phone number, Fairfax 81521, repeated by each twin. Well, I think God wants us to be able to remember and recall important passages, like, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John 3.16 Or, By grace you have been saved through faith. Not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not by works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 or even, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5-6 to six. God recognizes that our frailties leave us to tend to remember catchphrases, so he orchestrated the Bible to contain important sound bites that we ought to be able to remember. Hello and welcome to God's Word for You for today from Liberty Lake Church. Today we have a special message by our brother in Christ, Alan Ulmer. We will be looking at several passages, so take out your Bible and start by opening it to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, and follow along with Alan as he takes a look at some familiar Bible phrases that point us in the direction of being like Christ in the message titled, Five Words That Change Everything. again up in front. Thank you worship team for the wonderful songs. Very, very appropriate. Um, it's great to have that uh, blessing of that music. As we come together this morning, we're going to talk about uh, change. And uh, all of us have experienced or are familiar with the experience of hearing things that change everything or at least at the moment seem to be those things that are going to change our whole world. You've failed. You'll have to take the test over. <laughs> you made the team. Congratulations. I'm sorry, we have to let you go. A couple of them for me are, uh, you may kiss the bride. <laughs> uh, January, or July 25th, 1981, right up here. I got to do that. Another one for me is, uh, you have cancer. And... Uh, Fortunately, I'm in the process of recovering from that um, on a monitoring program for the next five years, and hopefully each time I get another test, it'll be negative. So far, it's just, I wait till the next test. All of us experience change as part of our life experience, and yet the God that reveals himself to us in the Word of God, the Bible, is himself not influenced by change, according to his Word in Malachi 3, verse 6. So this morning we want to examine some ways in which God uses change in 
the lives of his people to accomplish his purposes. And to start out doing that, we want to look at Genesis chapter 3. Um, so if you have a Bible or a tablet or a phone, we'll take a look at that. Before we get into the Word of God, though, let us pray. Our great, amazing God, as we've sung about you this morning, we thank you and praise you for the privilege of coming here to worship. We thank you that you've called us here, you've provided this time and this place, and that it is not a matter of coincidence that each of us are here, but you have sovereignly ordained that we be here, and you have given us your word through which we hear you speak. And so we pray that you would give us ears to hear this morning. We pray that your spirit would apply these truths to each one of us individually and to us as your church corporately. And we pray that we would come away from here uh, blessed, uh, fed in our souls, encouraged, uh, challenged, and possibly in some cases even convicted that you would draw us to yourself that we, by your grace, uh, experiencing your mercy and your compassion, would recognize the God that you are and the people that you have called us to be because of who you are. And so we pray for your grace, and we look forward to what you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Three different particular texts we want to look at this morning. Uh, a little lengthy, um, but the context of what we want to draw from these is critical. And so rather than try to isolate the individual things, I'll read the texts and then we'll take a look at the things we want to see. It's interesting that the first five words are in Genesis 3 are almost identically repeated in 1 John chapter 3. And in between those two texts, in a time frame, as well as for us as God's people, a change of perspective frame, there's the second set of five words that we'll look at in John chapter 3. But let's take a look at Genesis 3 first of all. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock 
and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You will be like God. When the serpent uttered those words, it changed the situation for Adam and Eve. And it's ironic whether or not they realized the gravity of it or the significance of it. They were already like God. In chapter 1, verses 26 and 27 of Genesis, as God is going through the process of creation, we are told that God determines, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So what the serpent told them was already true the way God wanted it to be. The presentation that the serpent, Satan, embodied the creature, the serpent, tells Adam and Eve and succeeding generations is there's a way to be like God without God. There's a way in which you can be autonomous. That is, you can usurp God's authority. You can become a law unto yourself. That's what the word autonomous means. Auto is self, and nomos is law in Greek. It's a self-law. You create your own law. In the Truth Project, one of the things that we've examined in the past few weeks is the idea that you can control people if you change the way they view history. If you alter how they see the past... You can change what they think right now and their behavior for succeeding periods of time, even generations. Many people would like to say that this part of the book of Genesis is simply myth. It's a fairy tale. There's no such thing as talking serpents or snakes or whatever the serpent looked like. And... There certainly wasn't Adam and Eve. I mean, that's nonsense. We, we didn't come to be who we are today from something like that. I would also like to pose to you the idea that as people of God, what we think about the future changes how we behave today and how we will behave tomorrow and in days to come. And we'll see how that plays out here. But Satan wants to change the history of Adam and Eve by saying, God will not kill you. 
you will not die. Direct contradiction to God's word in chapter 2, verse 17, where he sets Adam and Eve in the garden, gives them a purpose for their life, and says, you have every tree to eat of except this one. It's interesting that in chapter 2, verse 17, or in chapter 2, when he places them in the garden, two distinct trees are mentioned. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God doesn't prohibit them from eating of the tree of life. But they don't even pay any attention to it as soon as Satan comes along and says, that one tree that you are prohibited from eating of, you should, you should eat that. That's, that's important. You're going to become more. You're going to become better. The interesting thing about the description of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is it doesn't give them any substance. It gives them knowledge. It's a tree of judgment. It isn't a tree of you will receive life or you will be fed and your body will be sustained. It simply changes what they know. And when Satan describes that, he says, you will know good and evil. You'll be like God. But what he doesn't tell them and what they don't realize until they eat it is they will know good and evil, but they will no longer be able to do good. They will only be able to do evil. And we know that from Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, where God, in considering his creation and the effects of this act of Adam and Eve, not only upon Adam and Eve and their progeny, but the whole of creation, as we're told in the book of Romans, becomes under the curse. It becomes in bondage. And suddenly, things begin to fall apart because nothing is the way it was when it was under the order of God and his commands. And so they were no longer able to do what God wanted them to do. And so as we're it is described to us in Romans chapter 6, they became slaves to sin. And it's interesting to think about the moment from the point of Eve looking at the fruit and where that transitions to sin. We've all been tempted. Many of us will be tempted. Probably all of us will be tempted today. And often we don't even cognizantly think about what's happening when we're tempted. If it's something that we've given into on a regular basis, it's very easy to just say, well, you know, I just really want this. Or I just really don't want to do this, even though God says I should. Or I just don't care. But where that changes from being simply a temptation to a sin, it's been debated off and on for generations. But clearly, there was a point when Adam and Eve were not sinners. And then, very quickly, they were. Eve saw the tree after Satan really got her enamored with it. She looked at it. When she first started to examine that tree, was it her intention to eat? Maybe. Maybe she just wanted to get a closer look at it. Once she picked whatever the fruit was, everyone has their favorite rendition of whatever that fruit was, did she intend to eat the fruit? Or did she just want to get a closer look at it compared to the other fruit that she was already familiar with? 
she did eat. And she gave some to Adam. We don't have any description here of any interaction between them. You can speculate on whether they discussed this process or if Eve acted on her own and then brought some to Adam. We, we don't know all the gory details. But we know that there was a time when they could have said no. And then there was a time when they couldn't go back. It's interesting, the description of her examination of the tree uh, fits the description uh, in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, where in that context we're told, do not love the world or the things of the world, for those who love the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For all the things that are in the world, the desires of the flesh, Eve saw that the tree was good for food. The desire of the eyes. Eve saw that the tree was beautiful. It was attractive. The, the desires of uh, what we want to have as our own control. She saw that the tree was desirable to make one wise. And so she decided, I need that because God's holding out on me. And the results of that, just a few of them, there's innumerable ones if we really wanted to talk about it and think about it for long term. But initially, one of the results of their action was fear. Prior to that, they had not known fear. And suddenly, they're afraid. God shows up, they're afraid. And the fear that they experience at that moment is what's called servile fear. It's fear of punishment. And so they hide from God. The fear that we are enjoined to have uh, references Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, where we're told the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. It's filial fear or reverential fear. It's honor. And once they violated God's one and only prohibition at that juncture, they no longer had that type of fear for God. They were afraid of punishment. They were afraid of His retribution for their violation. The other thing which has been acknowledged here before is blame became as a result of their action. I think that potentially this is where the insurance companies have come up with that nice little clause which is described as the acts of God so that they can avoid paying you for those things that they don't want to cover. Adam does this. He said, God, it's your fault. <laughs> this act that you came about in bringing me this woman, she caused me to eat the fruit, and therefore I sinned. And of course, Eve blames the serpent. And God doesn't even question the serpent. If you look at the text, he simply condemns the serpent. Because he knows that, in fact, the serpent prompted all of this business. But the ultimate thing that comes out of all of this is the curse upon Eve, upon Adam, upon the serpent, upon the whole creation. And we're still reaping the results of that curse to this day in a variety of ways, as we all know. The next five words we'd like to look at are in John chapter 3. Again, another fairly familiar text. Jesus gets a visit <coughs> from Nicodemus. 
John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who was descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. These five words that we want to look at in this context are a command. They're not a suggestion or an option. They're a command. Jesus says, don't marvel that I tell you, you must. It's essential that you be born again or born from above. The, the translation born again takes from what Nicodemus perceived Jesus to be saying. As we see here, he says, well, how can an old guy be you know, born a second time? Can he you know, go back to his mom and do it over again? But the Greek literally says born from above, which is, again, it's a second birth. Unless this takes place, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You're not able to desire something or seek something that you can't see. Describing spiritual blindness that we have until the Spirit acts. Unless you have this birth, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. That kingdom that you cannot see without the birth. You cannot enter it if you can't see it. And that's describing our spiritual inability until the Spirit of God works. We see those ideas reinforced throughout the book of John, uh, not to say the whole of the Scriptures. John 6.44, Jesus tells the people who are seeking him to make him king because of the bread that he could multiply and keep them fed. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws them. And then I will raise them up on the last day. In John chapter 14, Jesus, in his last concentrated time with his disciples before his crucifixion, he tells them, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14 said, the, the natural person cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God because they're spiritually 
understood, spiritually discerned. And so without the act of the Holy Spirit in this second birth, this birth from above, there's no hope. But everyone who is born of the Spirit, verse 8, has a whole different situation. And this contrast, this birth of the Spirit and the birth of the flesh, there's some correlation, but there's also some distinctions. Think about your physical birth. We, we didn't get to choose when we were born or to whom we were born. We didn't get to choose who we would resemble, our mom or our dad or, you know, Uncle Joe or whatever. We didn't get to choose the family traits of the family in which we're born into. We had really nothing to say in the matter. And spiritual birth is compared to that. God births his people, his children, when he wants, the way he wants. And that's the blessing that we're told about in the epistles, especially of Paul, that there's many members in the body of Christ, the church, but we're still one body. We don't all play the same part. And he kind of plays that up and says, what if we were all an ear? <laughs> that, there'd be, we'd have a problem. It's hard to walk if you're just an ear. You need some legs. Or you need to be able to speak. Or you need some eyes to be able to see. Somebody has to be the hands to do the things that the ear can't do. There's many parts. And we're not all the same. But when we're born again, we're united as one body in Christ. But without that birth, we can't fulfill that role. Because we don't even understand what it is. We can't see it. We're spiritually blind. We're spiritually unable to perform spiritual duties. The last set of five words we want to look at is in 1 John, particularly chapter 3, but the last two verses of chapter 2 uh, really tie the first part of 1 John and then set the stage for the last part of 1 John. And so we're going to look at this text that's basically right in the middle of the book. The Apostle John writes and he says, And now little children... Abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we shall be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Different rendition of the claim that the serpent, Satan, made to Adam and Eve when he said, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil, if you do this thing, if you eat of this forbidden tree. The Apostle John tells us here, you will be like him, but for a different reason, and in a substantially, eternally significant, different way. First of all, he tells us, verse 28, he says, if you're abiding in him, your confidence is in him, when he appears, 
You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be ashamed. You'll be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You won't be naked and facing judgment only on your activity. You will have what he provides for you. You will not experience that servile fear, that fear of judgment, that fear of punishment, but you'll experience filial fear. In fact, in chapter 4 of First John, we are told that uh, love is perfected in us so that we may be confident for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. And he goes on and talks about that, that whoever is born of him experiences his love and experiences and understands that righteousness that he's called us to. And in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, see what kind of love. Consider the significance of the love of God. Literally in the Greek, it's out of this world kind of love. The way we love is conditional. And I've wrestled with this for many years in First John. John elaborates on love to a great degree throughout this whole epistle of First John. And I've come to the conclusion, and I might be wrong, but if a person is not born again, if they have not experienced that eternal love of God, that what they exhibit is really not love, that apart from that second birth, we, we really don't love. Because you think about the interaction, the relationships between people who are not children of God, they don't really love like John describes. They don't love one another and forgive one another and keep on doing that. As Jesus told the disciples, 70 times 7, you should forgive somebody because you love them and because they come and repent. If God had not loved us first and forgiven us, we hold grudges. And we hold people accountable over and over and over. But because of God's love in Christ, we can love and we can forgive. Because that's what God does. And so when he appears, when Christ comes again, we'll see him. And seeing him is going to change everything at that moment. But knowing that we're going to see him where we are today should reflect who he is. Because he says we are called children of God and we are children of God. And that designation of God means we're his possession. We belong to him if indeed we've experienced that second birth that's described in John chapter 3. The other thing that happens is with that second birth, knowing that he's coming, knowing that we will be like him, greater than we can be now, the one who understands that and knows that practices righteousness seeks to do what is right. Chapter 2, verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure 
that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And then chapter 3, verse 3, he says, everyone who thus hopes, knowing he's going to appear, knowing we're going to see him, knowing we're going to be like him, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. Purification is used in a number of ways in Scripture. One of the primary ways, because of the bulk of the Old Testament and the sacrificial system that was provided by God in that interim between the promise of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, of the seed of the woman who would overcome Satan and the seed of the woman actually coming and doing that, you have ceremonial purity. It's accomplished by sacrificing the right sacrifice for the right situation. But as we're told in the book of Hebrews, the blood of bulls and goats and whatever else you wanted to kill is not sufficient. You can even shed your own blood and it's not sufficient to pay for your sin. The ceremonial cleanness was temporary. And the writer to the Hebrews makes that clear and says, yeah, the priest has to keep going back and offering another sacrifice and another sacrifice and another sacrifice. But when Jesus comes and he has and when he sacrifices himself, it's done. That's why Jesus could say on the cross, it's finished. Your sin is atoned for. If you trust in him. Being like God. Being made in his image. Trusting in the person of Christ. And being conformed to his image. As we're told that we ought to be as people of God. Means that we look like him. And what does that look like? Well, we act like him because we don't see him physically. The image that we display is not a physical image per se, but it's an active image. And throughout John, as I alluded to earlier, we're told to love one another. Again, Jesus with his disciples uh, in that time he spent with them in the upper room prior to his crucifixion said, a new commandment I'm giving to you that you love one another as I have loved you. When you do this, everybody's going to know that you belong to me. Everybody's going to know that you are following me. Everybody's going to know that you're like me if you love one another. There isn't any magic in the five-word concept. It just happens that in English, these have five words. The five words of Genesis chapter 3 are actually only two words in Hebrew and three words in Greek. So that's, there's no magic about five words. There are other five words in Scripture that are significant, but again, it's only in English. I mean, another one that we could consider just and we're not going to spend time on it, but is after this life is over, we're given a view of heaven. We're going to see part of that later. But one of the views we're given is there's five words describing what takes place there. And the books were opened. There's a record. They might not be physical books like what we use, but there's a record of everything that you and I have ever said or ever done or ever thought or will yet do or say or think. That's a reality that's coming. We don't know when. It might be today. 
It might be a thousand years from now. It's a reality that's coming that should affect what we do today, tomorrow, as long as we're able to take breath. It's not up to me or you to judge our, each other per se. God's got the record and his record is accurate. And he judges justly. We don't. But he tells us there's a way in which we can be like him. And it's not by usurping his authority and taking everything upon ourselves. It's not by saying, I want what I want, when I want it, the way I want it. It's by looking to the provision that he has made. It's by being born again by his spirit, being called into his family to have our spiritual eyes opened, not to know good and evil, but to see his kingdom. To see the access is through Christ. And to see that he's called us to be active. Spiritually. As well as physically loving one another. Forgiving one another. Encouraging one another. Every text throughout scripture that has to do with one another is a relational text that we need to have at this level. But in order to do it God's way, at this level, the horizontal level from person to person, we have to first have the relationship with God that is vertical from Him to us, which comes to us in Christ. When we see the cross, we see both of those relational things represented. You have the vertical relationship that comes to us through Christ, and you have the horizontal relationship that comes out of Christ to us and from us to whomever God puts into our sphere. Our friends, our family, our neighbors, co-workers, whomever it is. People need to hear those words that they can be like him. They can be prepared for his return. As I trust that each of us are. Let's pray. Our great and awesome God, we thank you for the blessing of the truth of your provision. In spite of our willful disobedience, where we desire to be our own God, to control our own world, and to leave you out of the picture, even going so far as to say, well, you don't really exist, or maybe you simply don't matter. But you have called us to recognize that you are real and that you really do care and that you really have been here in history and you really are coming again in the future. And that on that last day, we do not have to be afraid of you. We do not have to be ashamed of our behavior. We can trust and be clothed with the righteousness of Christ and trusting that when he was punished on the cross for sin, that it included each of our sins, every sin, and that we are forgiven, and that by him we are cleansed and we are made right with you, and we can have fellowship with you first and foremost, but it also enables us to have fellowships with every person we come in contact with and grants us the grace to love and to forgive and to bring forth the glory and the blessing of the gospel which comes through Christ. We thank you for that blessing that we have received and we pray that you would grant us the opportunities and the ability to convey that blessing to others. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Regarding our understanding of the future, the Word of God tells us in just a small glimpse of what glory there is for the people of God. Revelation 22, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, 
bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. We have described here that tree of life of which Adam and Eve were not able to partake of until this time. We have living forever. We have no curse. We have worship. We have the ability described of seeing his face and being named with his name. And we long for that day and that should transform how we live today looking forward to that, that we should be like Him now as much as we can be every single day, knowing that ultimately on that day we can only be like Him and never sinful and selfish and all of those other things ever again. Praise God. We're going to have... Thank you for listening to today's message from Liberty Lake Church in Liberty Lake, Washington. Our pastor, our elders, and our prayer watch team are available to pray with you or to answer any questions you may have. Contact us through www.LibertyLakeChurch.com or follow us on Facebook. We look forward to hearing from you and welcome any comments you may have. As always, we appreciate your prayer support. Join us next week on God's Word for You for today for another message from Liberty Lake Church. Thank you again, and God bless.